there is no question that uh, climate risk uh, is financial risk. We're not looking to avoid those sectors with high emissions. In fact, you know, quite the reverse. When you look at the mitigation and the adaptation aspects of climate change, you see opportunities too. Hello, what impact will climate change have on investment portfolios? Should investors ready themselves for a disorderly transition to net zero? In other words, not really getting there. Or what if it all does get sorted out? What are the investment implications for a greener, decarbonised future? Saying them out loud, these are some pretty existential questions. So we've brought together some of Fidelity's top minds who've been wrestling with these topics to give practical, concrete ideas on how investors can rise to the challenge. I'm Richard Edgar, and this is Rich Pickings, Fidelity's Asset Allocation Podcast. With me today are multi-asset portfolio manager Caroline Shaw, fixed income portfolio manager Chris Ankinson, and global macroeconomist Anna Stupnitska. Thank you all for joining me today. Hi, Thanks very much, Richard. Now, you've all had plenty to deal with over the past couple of years. War, pandemic, a generational shift in market regime. It would be understandable if sustainability had dropped down the agenda. So, Caroline, has it? I think it would be fair to say it hasn't been top of the agenda recently. And um, if we're referring specifically to climate change, that would definitely be true. So I I think it was 2021, the ONS here in the UK did a survey and said that 75% of adults were concerned or very concerned about climate change. I think if you'd asked that question last year, that number would have fallen because, of course, there were more things closer to people's mind, like energy security, uh, because of the war in the Ukraine. So, yeah, it's natural that things will will fluctuate in terms of priority, but it is on our agenda. And we've uh, spent the last three years at least working really hard on trying to understand those climate change risks within investment opportunities uh, and assess companies and look at all the increasing amount of data that's available. We've got more data now than ever to assess as companies improve their disclosure. So we are on this transition, we're on this pathway, uh, and we're having more dialogue about climate with, um, with investors. So there is an increased interest. I don't think it's gone away. It's just that other things rise to the top of an agenda occasionally. But the work has gone on under the surface. Enormous amounts of work, and it's not over. We're, we're just getting started. <laughs> it's not over. Chris, let me bring you in on that. You know, we're talking about uh, priorities and um, other things that seem to sort of dominate attention from one moment to the next. Um, how has that played out as, as you see it from the fixed income world? Obviously, uh, fixed income has been uh, somewhat in the uh, the eye of the storm over the last 12, 18 months with, uh, with everything that's been going on with inflation and interest rates. And, and therefore, as a fixed income portfolio manager, it's very easy to sort of get dis- distracted by to the sort of the day-to-day um, uh, volatility that you see on your screens. Uh, but that said, you know, climate, it's still very much uh, a, a risk that we put front and centre of our uh, investment considerations. There is a huge amount of research coming out that, uh, that highlights the sort of short to medium-term risks. So we had the uh, World Economic Forum uh, earlier on this year in their risk report and then in January. Uh, highlighting that climate was, you know, one and two in their long-term risks, their 10-year risks. 
there were another four risks in their top 10 that were all related to climate change. Um, obviously, in the sort of day-to-day volatility that we see, it's very easy to forget that climate change is the sort of the elephant in the room. Uh, but it's important that we will remember that it's going to have a significant impact on uh, uh, returns and, and obviously risk going forward. Got to juggle quite a lot of things at the same time. Anna, you're just back from the IMF World Bank spring meetings in Washington, D.C. Um, how much of the focus there was on climate change? Yes, it was quite interesting, actually. There was quite a lot of talk about climate, but it was framed through a lens of energy security. What Caroline said, this this has been on top of the agenda. Um, and of course, the war in Ukraine has accelerated that energy transition. Um, but the primary driver has not been uh, environmental concerns. It's been energy security. So uh, I would say climate change is still on top of the agenda, uh, but the, the backdrop, the considerations have changed. It's about energy security. Uh, but I guess the, the positive spin here is that um, the, the changes that, that need to uh, happen to uh, increase energy security are very much in line in most cases uh, with the net zero transition changes. Um, and so even though it's perhaps less about sustainability and climate change stuff in the headlines. Um, I still think uh, this is a very important consideration. There was a lot of talk uh, and uh, th- th- there is some progress in terms of policies. So some progress. Did you come back encouraged and enthused from those meetings or were there new worries introduced? What was a bit different is the focus on the changing backdrop for emerging markets, uh, given tighter financial conditions, higher funding costs, and um, uh, prospects uh, for potential debt restructurings across the EM, uh, that complicates uh, that effort uh, towards uh, adaptation and mitigation. Uh, and we need more inter- international cooperation uh, in this regard. And, and I think uh, this is now the rising concern out of uh, everything related to climate change is that the emerging markets are very much behind. Uh, there is not enough capital. There is not enough. There are not actually uh, enough projects that uh, look scalable uh, and that, that would actually make a difference. Um, and also there are not enough innovative financial instruments that could be used to attract to both uh, public and private capital. An awful lot of work to do in the capital markets then. I saw you, Chris, nodding as um, Anna was speaking there about not enough projects um, going on. H- how can that change and, and what, can, what can we do to, to, to help that change? I think in the fixed income markets, and that's obviously where my, my interest is, is primarily, um, I think we've actually been very successful in, in delivering the sort of green bond product, which... I think has scaled. Uh, we've been able to deliver scalable projects, uh, but that really comes as a function of the fact that these are, you know, there is an economic incentive for those types of projects uh, to be built. So think about wind farms, think about solar uh, projects. They all have an economic return, and therefore corporates will build those, and they will build them in scale as so long as the economic incentives uh, exist. I think what um, you know Anna is referring to is on the mitigation side, where there is no real economic incentive other than um, you know the, the social benefit. That, 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 that arise from that. It, it's been very difficult to um, to uh, to generate projects of sufficient size to be um, issued within the bond markets in a, in a sort of benchmark 
um, type format. So, you know, typically a benchmark format would be somewhere in the million of 200 to 3 million dollars worth of um, of debt, and that would be a really small bond, right? So we're typically looking to raise something like 500 million, a billion uh, dollars worth of debt uh, in order to make a transaction worthwhile. Well, th- these these projects just don't don't exist, and so that's something that you know we're very focused on. We are trying to work with the companies that we. Um, that we speak to on a daily basis to encourage them to come to us and, and, and you know with the, the types of projects that they're interested in and find a way um, of pushing those forward and, and providing uh, the, the capital that is needed for those projects. Does it need steering from policymakers, from governments? I mean, uh, the, the people who are at the um, IMF World Bank meetings or the, the ones who influence them? Policy support is always going to be required um, for these projects to, to go ahead because, as I said, you know, fundamentally many of them aren't economic or you know, even if they do generate some sort of return on capital, that return on capital is not sufficient for um, capital market participants to, to, to provide that capital. So there needs to be a sort of financial incentive provided by, um, by policymakers or even just a, an environment of stability that allows us to invest with some degree of certainty and therefore lower the cost of capital. Um, so that, that, that requirement is definitely there. And I can give you a good example, actually. Um, you know, obviously, last year we had COP15 and the, you know, the 30 by 30 agreement. On the back of that, we then had the Task Force for uh, Nature-Related Financial Disclosure. I think I got that right. <laughs> Um, uh, draft uh, which came out at the end of, of March. Now, the, the the advantage that that provides this is around biodiversity metrics, etc. The advantage that that provides is the comparability between different companies, different investments. As soon as you have comparability and you have credible metrics, then you can have targets. If you have targets, then uh, that allows you to deploy capital in a meaningful way, and that could push us towards. Um, uh, being able to raise capital either within a green bond wrapper or in some sort of other um, uh, financial uh, product to to address those issues on, on, on biodiversity. Okay, well, in that context, and thank you very much for setting it out like that, um, Anna, I know that you and the macroeconomics team have been focusing on looking at not just the transition to net zero, but also the impact of climate change on capital market assumptions and how that feeds into asset allocation decisions. So, when it comes to these risks, what, what what are the conclusions that you've reached in terms of how investors um, should be thinking about them? So there is no question that uh, climate risk uh, is financial risk. Um, and that comes from the interaction of both the physical risks, um, and these are related to uh, actual climate change, rising temperatures, extreme weather events, and transition risks, uh, which are related to policies, regulation, um, technological developments, etc. So when we look at the combination of these risks and we look at the different scenarios, um, which um, are now widely adopted, the scenarios published by the Network for Greening the Financial System, uh, we can see that the impact on uh, GDP inflation rates, so the key macroeconomic variables which go uh, into our capital market assumptions, which are used to produce risk return profiles for different asset classes um, in the medium and long term. These profiles are very different across scenarios. What are the scenarios and what's the base case that, um, that you're taking for those? 
So we'll look at uh, the scenarios published by uh, the Network for Green the Financial System. This is a, a widely adopted framework now across central banks, supervisors across the financial sector. Um, they have six different scenarios, which can be grouped into uh, three main groups. Uh, hothouse world, so this is if current policies continues and we don't manage to cap the temperature increase at uh, one and a half degrees or two degrees uh, above pre-industrial levels, uh, so that's three degrees plus increase. And then there is transition, but one group reflects an orderly transition and the other group reflects a disorderly transition to net zero. So we do manage to cap the temperature increase at uh, below two degrees centigrade, uh, but this, this transition risks uh, um, enter uh, differently in terms of sort of timing and in terms of the size. The impact is different um, depending which asset class you're looking at. Yeah, so first of all, when we look at uh, the macroeconomic profile coming out from these different scenarios, we see huge differences uh, in terms of GDP, inflation, rates, uh, and of course, huge regional differences. As we know, it's it's the Southern Hemisphere, and particularly emerging markets in, in, in Southern Hemisphere that are very much exposed um, uh, to to these risks, but physical risks in particular. Uh, and of course, the macroeconomic scenarios are what we feed into our capital market assumptions. So then we feed uh, these different paths for macroeconomic variables into our models. And what we see is that the effect on risk return profile for different asset classes is hugely different across the scenarios and also hugely different to our own baseline that we use. Who comes out of this best? Um, who comes out of this worst? In terms of asset classes, fixed income it tends to be less affected by climate change as the price impact um, is typically offset by high income. Again, the magnitude of this varies uh, across countries and scenarios. So if we have a disorderly transition, this, this is where not much happens for the next few years. But then to transition to net zero, we have to uh, invest a lot. We have to push through lots of regulation. We have to push through carbon pricing. So this delayed efforts... Uh, to manage climate risk, they result in, in sudden increase in, in rates, for example, because it's very inflationary. And so bond yields are high. And in this case, uh, fixed income actually fares uh, pretty bad uh, relative to other scenarios and relative to other asset classes. Equities are more sensitive overall uh, to these risks, uh, given that um, the valuation is, is typically based on discounted future cash flows. Uh, and again, it, it's the disorderly transition where equities have the worst outcome and also hothouse world scenarios because you have really high physical risks a few years down the line, particularly in emerging markets. So it's emerging market equities, equities overall that are exposed, but emerging markets in particular uh, within that. And then corporate uh, credits are high yield and uh, investment grade is somewhere in between. Uh, and again, it depends on what scenarios we're looking at. But but the bottom line is overall returns are lower. They differ a lot depending on which scenario you pick. And therefore, this just shows how important it is for us to understand the implications and also to incorporate various climate change uh, assumptions into our overall models for uh, strategic cost allocation. 
Well, and a very helpful framework that you've um, set out there. Caroline, you're actually having to manage clients' uh, money and invest based on that sort of information. So um, how are you interpreting the, the wealth of information? You were talking about data a little bit earlier on. There's just growing um, supplies of data, which is very helpful, but an awful lot of it. So taking all of this into account, how do you start to actually invest based on that? There's a couple of points here that are key. And I suppose on the data front, um, the really important thing is that it's about collating data, but also about companies setting targets that we can actually see as measurable against going forwards, because then we can track progress. Without those targets, you can't see progress. And the second thing, you know, Anna's talking about lots of risks in the market. Uh, And with my, you know, I'm in multi-asset, I have an equity hat on a lot of the time. Uh, With my equity hat on, where there's risk, there's opportunity. Uh, And so it's very important to assess those opportunities as well, because we talk a lot about climate change risks, and of course they are there. But when you look at the mitigation and the adaptation aspects of climate change, you see opportunities too. So we're talking about mitigating greenhouse gas emissions, uh, that a lot of that can be done through uh, cleaner energy. So there are opportunities in in the solar and wind space that we can invest in, Uh, but also on adaptation. You know, there's there's quite a lot of discussion now talking about where, where capital needs to flow and capital flowing to not, not assuming that we're not going to get there to net zero, but assuming that it's going to be a difficult path. We've got to have some adaptation uh, within our world uh, and things like uh, resilience in, um, let's say, agriculture uh, and resilience in, in corporates as well, in businesses to be able to withstand the, the, the stresses that climate change will bring to their business models. Uh, so we're assessing that as well, where we're seeing companies that can um, manage better through that transition should be able to deliver superior returns. So although overall, Anna's modelling is showing that um, expected returns will be lower across the board, across the globe, there will be pockets of sectors, pockets of themes that will deliver superior growth. So as you put it, with your equities hat on, mm. a glass half full... Let me come to fixed income and the, <laughs> the glass half empty. But Chris, um, you know, de- decarbonising um, portfolios, moving away from securities with high carbon emissions, it, it's a bit more than that, isn't it, um, for you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, firstly, I would say that we're not, you know, we're not looking to avoid those sectors with high emissions. In fact, you know, quite the reverse. Obviously, those sectors are usually the ones that have the greatest need for capital to to transition. So you know, we're actively looking to deploy capital into into companies that we think are, are sort of uh, anticipating uh, the risks in a, in a in a sort of conservative way. So you know when we're thinking about you know we've talked a lot about risk today. We're thinking about transition risk. Obviously the transition to uh, to to greener technologies. We're thinking about that physical risk. In other words, where are your assets? Are they in places where that could be impacted by extreme weather events? And of course we're thinking about reputation risk. So you know the types of uh, companies that I'm sure we can all think of that, that we uh, won't mention on this yes podcast, that we right? won't mention on this podcast <laughs> that uh, you know that have been in you know in the uh, crosshairs for for their impact on the environment. So all of those things you know and in, in, in the same way that Anna was uh, talking about the the differences in, in impact between uh, different asset classes. Of course, there are different impacts on different sectors and even within those sectors, different companies. So I think all of this what this boils down to is that yes, you know overall returns might be might be lower but there'll be greater dispersion of returns which means greater alpha generation opportunities so by underweighting those companies and those sectors that are less um, prepared um, and overweighting those that uh, 
that are more forward thinking. And, and a question for both of you, which is about the, you know, what is it that actually triggers a buy or a sell on your parts? Are you driven more by the um, the strategic discussion, which is what we've been talking about, everything that Amon has talked about, the, the big um, moves, the big um, trends that, um, that, that we're talking about? Or are there also some triggers that make you go, ah, haven't heard this before, and I, I feel I want to know more, and I'll actually pile in on a particular thing you might might have heard. I think obviously, you know, when you're making an investment decision, there is a combination of factors that are um, that are playing into that. So, you know, valuation is first and foremost. Everything has a price, right? So, and and uh, uh, I think if the you know if the risk factors are adequately compensating you, um, even if they are higher than average, you know, for example, a higher physical risk. If you're if you're compensated for that, then that's a risk that is that is worth um, is worth taking. I think when we're thinking about, you know, the sort of technological developments, you know, moving towards greener technologies, obviously, we as bondholders, are we're not compensated for that sort of blue sky um, uh, upside that, uh, uh, that that we were referring to earlier, we're, we're sort of more, uh, as you said, glass, you know, half uh, empty type of uh, characters, and therefore much more worried about the potential downside, the increase in default risk. So the best thing that we can hope for is, you know, that as revenues grow, our default risk declines, and therefore we are more certain of getting our capital back but when we're looking at those sort of newer technologies we're looking at the ways that the companies approach them there's the long-term strategic direction does it tie in within a, a net zero um, objective you know do we feel that those investments are plausible or good use of capital is the regulatory environment supportive so on and so forth so it is it is, you know there are multiple factors that play into that decision it's no one sort of light bulb moment same for you, Caroline, or, or the, are there different factors that make you go, I will step into this? Yeah, so similar uh, to some extent, then also different factors in that from a thematic perspective, we're looking for a theme that can run the course and we're looking for a theme that can deliver those superior returns over time. And so that doesn't apply to every theme out there in the market. Some themes just wouldn't have the capital flows behind them and the uh, the regulatory and policy support that is needed to deliver superior investment returns over time. So things like the uh, Inflation Reduction Act in the US, for example, and the Europeans following suit and the support in the UK for offshore wind, all those are material tailwinds behind a clean energy theme. Uh, And so it's that that we're looking for in addition to the, the valuations being appropriate with those superior alpha opportunities over time. And how does this work in multi asset? Because I would think of you as being one step removed from an equity portfolio manager who's investing in, you know, an, an individual instrument from one company. How, how does it work for you? Yeah, so we can we're looking at it uh, from multi layers. So yes, we are looking at it from that top down approach and trying to effectively meld different opportunities across different asset classes to to deliver a an overall portfolio that is balanced for a client. Uh, but we do look granu- right down to the granular level. Um, so we are taking uh, note of all the fidelity analyst ratings right from the bottom up uh, because that actually feeds into our top-down perspective as well. So multiple layers we're looking at, yeah, the building blocks that we're using and then also the individual corporates, uh, the individual issuers that are used by the building blocks that we use. And engagement is a very important theme across investment at Fidelity. How do you get involved in that? Yeah, from a multi-asset perspective, we are definitely involved. We've actually done some engagement on net zero transition paths. uh, And we've started off by engaging with all the infrastructure companies that we are connected with, uh, asking them for some of their emissions data. In some cases, asking them to publish it because it's not published. So we're starting from a low base. uh, But now we've got that data, we're now able to look at net zero targets with those companies. 
And now we're working on the second phase of it, which is, is to set interim targets with those companies. So we, as multi-asset analysts, can then look through and assess their progress against those targets. So that's something that isn't, it is done on a multi-asset level. Uh, we're also fortunate to be able to access all the engagement that's done at, at the, other, the other levels at Fidelity as well in both the equity and fixed income team. Well, that's how investors are digesting the risk. But what about companies and specifically the institutions that are financing homes and businesses and taking on all of this transition risk? Well, Global Head of Investment Research, Ned Salter, has been talking to chief executives about this very dilemma for Fidelity's trade-offs podcast. And one of those interviews was with the CEO of Bank of America, Brian Moynihan. I spoke to Ned a little bit earlier on how that discussion went. Ned. Welcome. What struck you, I'd like to know, in the many conversations that you've had with chief executives as you've been raising climate uh, and their company's efforts to address this crisis? Every chief executive that we've spoken to seemed to have a great sense of optimism about the commitments that have been made to help the climate transition and the achievement of net zero. And I think that was the first thing that struck me. The second thing is many of these management teams are speaking pretty articulately about the capital deployment process and how their companies are deploying capital, seeking technologies and solutions to power this climate change. I think there is an element of realism that is coming into the narrative a little bit as we get closer to 2050 in the time that is required. That's an interesting observation about the optimism, though. Um, Does it take a certain character to become chief executive uh, of of whatever company it might be? Um, And I suppose the follow-on is, is this misplaced optimism on their part? Or, given that so many of the problems around climate change seem insuperable, maybe you need a few optimists um, to to take these problems head-on and actually come up with some solutions? Yeah, I mean, we have no choice but to try. And I think that that's the position that they're sitting in today. Uh, Many chief executives run companies that generate negative externalities to society, and those negative externalities need to be mitigated. And that's one level of assessment on issues around sustainability. Then there are the companies that need to participate in the powering of the change. And that's where you have nothing else to do but try. And it seems like in the conversations that, that we've had that the full suite of stakeholders, so regulators, asset owners, asset managers, and investors, Everyone wants companies to make progress on this front. And so these chief executives work in service to their stakeholders. And so by definition, they're going to be taking a stab at it. Well, let's talk about one of them, because you spoke to Brian Moynihan, who's the CEO of Bank of America. And it's one of the world's largest banks, of course. Now, we know that he thinks about the risks that climate change and the energy transition pose. Um, Is he worried Well, I think he is both optimistic and realistic. And so on the optimistic side, I mean, we've talked at length in that interview with Brian about the lengths that Bank of America has gone to to improve their risk analysis and their lending books and the way that they operate as a corporate focused on powering uh, a just transition and an effective climate change. So I think he is optimistic that he can make a big difference to society. Um, But I think there is an element in the comments in the interview that suggests that, you know, 2050, while very far away, uh, 
is coming closer each and every day. And so I think that, you know, he is he is optimistic, but I think there's an element of caution as well. And I think one thing that's important to remember about these management teams is it's not the chief executive today that is likely to be the chief executive in 2050. And so I think the next generation of management is going to be the true litmus test. Well, we don't want to cast any aspersions about uh, Mr. Bonihan's longevity in the role, but you may be right on that. 2050 does seem some uh, somewhere away. Let's hear a clip from that discussion now. What about the physical risks that Bank of America faces when looking to finance businesses in regions where maybe climate change is having a big or an accelerated impact? The problem is in short term, it just, it's, it's, not that, it's not that material risk. And so the feedback our industry gives in the people want to incorporate this in stress test, it's nine quarters. There's nothing that's going to happen in nine quarters that's going to make that much a difference in the general climate risk or, you know, or sea level rise in nine quarters, you know, is it really going to change the course of history? And a storm's going to come. Even if we got this all right, the storms would still come. And so I think we've got to be careful about overstating that. Over a long period of time, yes. But what you'll do is start managing portfolios, which credit will become unavailable in those communities over time. Insurance will become unavailable over time because people just won't do it anymore. But if you only use economics as, a, as the driver to say, you know, that property on the uh, on the shorefront in a coastal area that could get hit by a hurricane or be subject to some flooding, it, you'll be a lot of years away from changing it. If you want to not have it built, you have to just say you can't build there. If you want to not have it insured, you can say nobody can insure it. But you know, there'll still be people who have their own money, don't care about insurance, to do it. But that'll start to limit the number of people. But I think we don't have a lot of near-term risk at all on this. We have climate experts. We put it. We disclose it. And I, but I really think from a philosophical or societal basis to use that as the reason in the short term won't push people along. Brian Monihan there. Now, Ned, is he right, first of all, to insist that there's no actual risk, no physical risk over the next nine quarters? It's not a very long time, is it? It's not a very long time. And I think, you know, while he is optimistic that we have a long duration to solve these very complex problems. Um, I do think on the physical risk side, there probably is some near-term risk that we need to be able to manage. And actually, to give Bank of America credit, as we talked about earlier, they are managing those risks in their loan book pretty effectively. And they have introduced tools that other banks are adopting as they think about you know, what's best in class in the banking sector. So I think he might be selling, selling himself a little bit short on that front. But yeah, I think there are some near-term risks that we need to be cautious about. And although he's focusing on the short term in, in that answer, is he putting his head in the sand a little bit for someone who's loaning billions of dollars to projects that could suffer from climate change. So I think he he has proven to be a pretty effective climate activist, you know, considering the position that he's in. Two thirds of our ability to achieve net zero could already be achieved if we just adopted leading technologies that are already available to us. But that one third is a big ask. And he is very focused on private capital and the capital markets being the vehicle by which we solve that problem. He says that governments and regulators can create the conditions to solve that medium and long term problem, but that the capital markets are the ones that are going to be best placed to do it. And Right at the beginning of that answer, you said he's a pretty effective climate activist given the position he's in. He's uh, at the top of a very large American bank. He's in a very public position. And the tide seems to have turned the political discourse um, around sustainable investing and sustainability in general seems to have turned in the US. Um, Does that make the role of someone like Mr. Moynihan almost impossible? 
He is in a difficult position. There's no question about it. But that's why he gets paid the big bucks. He has got to thread the needle between these like very politically sensitive topics and the reality that sea levels are rising and temperatures are, are rising. Let's get back to the interview now. So you, you talked about the pace of change needed to achieve climate goals and the role that the private sector can play. Let's hear another clip. You just want people to get going. And what's been unbelievable is the amount of net zero commitments by private sector companies, the net zero commitments by states, cities, countries, et cetera. It covers you know, 4,000, 5,000 companies have a net zero commitment. 95% of GDP as a country level has a net zero commitment. Do they have exactly how they get, get there? No, but they have it. And then we, the people in the private sector, can sit there and figure it out because now we have a duration that somebody's doing something. You can build markets around carbon, carbon capture. You can build markets around carbon markets. You can build markets around the transition value. And it, but, that's, but that's how we solve these things. And then capitalism come in and drive it. And that's hard for people to understand because they want to say, you know, are we making progress? Is there some number I can count? And there'll be lots of people having debates about that. But none of that takes into account the amount of work I see go on in the private sector that isn't countable in all those uh, models, honestly. It just isn't countable. So, Ned, that sounds suspicious to me, like he's saying, trust me. I think he is. And to be fair, um, I think there is some element of the technological advancements required where we are going to have to be optimistic and hopeful. But this is where the burden falls on the investment community. The community of people that's giving Bank of America the capital to be deployed is that we need to set up a set of KPIs and we need to monitor. So you have a commitment and the commitment isn't enough. The commitment needs to be monitored and checked. And you lead a team of research analysts who advise the portfolio managers at Fidelity who do either um, invest in, in Bank America or not. Does what they're reporting tally with what you heard from Mr. Moynihan? There's no question that activity in corporates is increasing at a parabolic rate. Um, we are seeing the level of commitments moving exponentially higher, and we are seeing the disclosure around those commitments moving exponentially higher. And so commit and disclose is terrific, but ultimately these corporates need to be held to account, and that's what the analysts and portfolio managers are working on. Good to hear. Ned Salter, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Ned Salter speaking to me there, and producer Seb urges me to remind you that you can hear the trade-off series over on the Fidelity Answers podcast channel. Either search Fidelity Answers in your podcast app or check for details in the show notes. Uh, Caroline, Ned uh, spoke there about a sense of optimism amongst chief executives. What gives you reasons to be optimistic and um, how can any of that translate into action for investors? I think inherently I am an optimist, so it's oh, quite easy for me to fall out as, a, as an optimist. Uh, but I think what gives me optimism is the fact that we are getting some progress on policy and regulation with the drive in the US, Inflation Reduction Act, the focus of the EU on matching something like that. Uh, so we are seeing some capital going into industries which will be able to help us as a planet towards this net zero transition. And I think from an investment perspective, we're 
able to capture those opportunities. You know, we have recently invested in the theme of clean energy uh, using um, uh, fidelity uh, analyst expertise uh, to build uh, exposure to, to the clean energy theme uh, and the supply chain of that theme. So equipment manufacturers, enablers of clean energy, rather than the products uh, from, from further down the cycle or the end of life cycle approach. And so I think with that capital flow into that sector, driven by government support, uh, that's a positive. Um, with my optimistic hat on, uh, and it, it's the only way, right? It's the only way we're going to get there is by having a joined up policy. And I think to Anna's point earlier about you know the focus on emerging markets, we need to see a bit more political joined up approaches that are across the globe, not just focused in the US and, and in Europe. Well, your optimism is, is, is rubbing off on me. Um, let's, let's carry that on to Anna, because I know that you've been tracking uh, some of what will be the key enablers for the transition. So what are the real game changers for you? We'll look at uh, three key uh, groups of enablers, corporate action, technology and policy. And so that's something that we think if we track uh, on a regular basis, uh, that will uh, allow us to gauge which kind of scenarios we're in. So a pessimistic take on all this is that we think we are in a disorderly transition scenario for the time being, and this is our baseline. But the optimistic take is that actually the policy shift that we have seen over the past year or so, uh, partly catalyzed by the war-induced energy crisis, they do have the potential to dramatically speed up the progress towards net zero transition. I talked about energy security at the beginning, that is on top of the agenda, and we are seeing uh, some progress now. Uh, on corporate action overall, we actually use our own uh, Fidelity's uh, climate ratings uh, to assess the companies. So far, we see that they're setting targets, uh, they take measures to somewhat mitigate the impact on climate change, but they're still struggling to align their activities to a net zero path. So that suggests to us we are still on the path towards a disorderly transition. On technology... Um, and there is a lot of optimism there in terms of what what exists and what's in development. Uh, but when we look at key technologies, that's low carbon energy, energy efficiency and storage, building efficiency and hydrogen, it's really just only electric vehicles that are on track for the net zero transition. Uh, so overall, again, we are very much behind. And finally, on policy, again, we have seen a lot of policy action over the past year, as Caroline mentioned, Europe and the US, that st really stands out. But it's the international cooperation that remains very weak. And that is really going to be um, the key to determining uh, the path, the transition path uh, in the years ahead. Lots of cooperation to, uh, to, to be done there. And Chris, um, I want to raise something. James Carville, he was a, um, a political advisor in, uh, in the US a few years ago, and he famously said, I used to think that if there was reincarnation, I wanted to come back as the president or the pope. But now I want to come back as the bond market. You can intimidate everyone. But if the bond markets are so powerful, what change can it bring about? I think there's been a lot of financial innovation within the in the fixed income space that has allowed or facilitated the deployment of capital into 
um, in, into uh, climate uh, friendly technologies. And I think that is that is something that, they, that, that we as a market should be uh, rightly uh, pleased about. I think there's a lot more to do uh, in that. It's still a relatively small part of the overall fixed income market. And clearly, given the enormous amounts of capital that Caroline referred to earlier as being you know, required to, to deploy into uh, into climate change, then um, then there's a lot more uh, that, that we can do. I think the other side is is, is obviously um, on engagement. You know, there are large parts of the market that are not touched by equity investors because they are private, because they're governments or they're government-related entities, and therefore their only provider of public uh, capital uh, is bondholders. So um, if we're not engaging with them, if we're not pressuring them to to improve their their behaviours, then 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 nobody else will. And if Anna's saying that there's not enough cooperation internationally, uh, could the bond markets scare everyone into working together more effectively? Uh, I, I think the bond markets have done a lot of scaring over the past uh, 12, 18 months. Uh, and, Mostly and of yourselves. Yes, yes, exactly. I, I've definitely grown a few more grey hairs. But yeah, I think that is, uh, you know, particularly in the absence of, um, you know, uh, of QE as a supportive factor um, for the bond markets going forward, then I think the, the potential for volatility to um, to induce changes in behaviour, I think, is uh, is that much. Uh, that much higher. And for those of you listening in black and white, I can confirm that Chris has got a few um, grey hairs. Just one or two, yeah. Just a couple. Right, we're nearly out of time for this month, but not before we play the Rich Pickings Parlour game, Hot Cakes and Hot Potatoes. What would you buy like a hot cake and what would you drop like a hot potato? Caroline, coming to you first. My hot cake is a couple of themes. That's two hot cakes, I know. Um, So we're going with clean energy and the materials needed to get there to the transition using that clean energy so demand on the way for them and what about your hot potatoes what are you dropping i'm dropping and again it's more of a theme and i think there's going to be increased investor scrutiny and interest in in where businesses are operating and where uh, financial institutions are lending and i think that's going to bring increased pressure in those segments something for brian Moynihan to watch out for now chris what about you your hot cakes well, I mean, this is the problem with not coordinating before you uh, you come on this podcast, because actually my themes are, are quite similar, actually. So um, Consistently. Yeah, that's, consistent. That's, that's, that's good. That's encouraging. Uh, so, so, I mean, my hot cakes, actually, um, uh, I was going to say the, the sort of the building material space, right? So, um, obviously, managing credit portfolios within those, we have a number of sectors and a number of high emission sectors. And, and, and you know, one of the most uh, high emission sectors is, um, is the building material space. So, you know, the cement producers, so on and so forth. That's an area that has actually been quite forward-thinking in terms of its um, uh, development of low-carbon uh, materials or, 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 or sustainable building materials. And indeed, as a function of that, there is quite a significant demand uh, on the part of um, uh, home builders to source and pay a premium for these sustainable building materials. So that is an area uh, that in our portfolios we're quite comfortable, and when we come back to those risks that we were talking about earlier, transition risks, et cetera, we're quite comfortable being overweight in a high carbon um, sector. And then anticipating your question on the, on the hot potato, actually, conversely, we're funding that 
with a another high emission sector, which is actually on the on the steel side. Uh, and the reason why we, we would be underweight um, steel is because the amounts of capital that are needed to deploy into the steel space are orders of magnitude greater than the current uh, market cap in order to make it um, in order to make it green. Uh, now the problem is that at the same time they're losing their free emissions. Right? So they have um, uh, uh, free emissions rights at the moment. This is in Europe. I'm talking, uh, and they're losing those, and that is going to have a very significant effect on their cash flow generation going forward. So they need to uh, raise huge amounts of capital at the same time that they're seeing a decline in their cash flow. So in the uh, climate-friendly portfolios that we're, that we're managing, we would be underweight the, the steel space and overweight the building materials in, in order to sort of play into both of those themes. Unhelpfully, I'm going to ask you a follow-up, which is how are the steel producers going to bridge this gap if, if you're not uh, interested in uh, in funding them? So, so this comes back to the point that I was making earlier. And right? so we obviously, you know, I, my, my, my view is that, you know, capital needs to be provided to these, um, you know, hard to abate sectors and, and capital intensive industries. And we are more than comfortable doing that, but it has to be at the right price. And, and unfortunately, the uh, the steel producers are not currently pricing in those sort of longer term structural risks. Plus, on top of that, obviously, quite a cyclical uh, sector. Um, you know, we're facing potentially a recession uh, later on this year, um, and uh, we don't think those risks are being priced in either. So it is not a question of not providing capital, it's, it's providing that capital at the right price. Okay, Nick. And Anna, um, you've been waiting patiently. Your hot cakes and your hot potatoes. So staying on the same theme of sustainability, I would say, and this is not uh, hot cake for the next month, although I would love it to be, but that's probably longer term, but something to focus on for investors, uh, is the theme of Ukrainian reconstruction. The Ukraine reconstruction is going to be uh, (laughs) one big project, and there will be a lot of capital dedicated to it. Uh, and yes, there are a lot of uh, um, barriers uh, before we get there. Uh, not the least that the war is still ongoing. But I would say anything that will have exposure to Ukraine reconstruction will be a very hot cake. A heartfelt hot cake from you, Anna. What about your hot potato? I think uh, a hot potato would be oil uh, from my side. And I'm aware that there are various supply side issues and of course, course we have the OPEC in place etc uh, but uh, in the shorter term uh, we do expect a recession particularly in the developed world and that will affect demand and in the longer term uh, as we are talking about transition to net zero uh, oil uh, will play some part but it will be playing an increasingly less important part in that transition and so for long longer term horizon that would be the hot potato well said. And I'm afraid that's all we've got time for this month. Thank you so much, Anna, Chris and Caroline for joining me and to Ned Salter. And thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, please do like, share and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The producers today were Holly Eastman and Seb Morton-Clark with technical production from Canon Blitz. For now, from all of us at Fidelity, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied upon by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without the prior permission of Fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, 
Please visit your local Fidelity website.